Hey, my name is Dr. Brendan McCarthy. Thank you so much for tuning in my podcast. Uh, I am the chief medical officer of Protea Medical Center in Chandler, Arizona. Um, today's episode, you know, I've done a lot of videos on women because that's that's my in my practice. That is the key demographic that I see. It's just and it's not something I set out to do, and it's not something I was. It's just it's just one of those things that you know as you do this. I remember a, a, one of my mentors told me usually your patients will find you, your people will find you and you will grow with them and they will grow with you. And, and I never set out to do what I'm doing. It just evolved as I went. And it has been such an amazing blessing because I could never have conceived this type of work when I first got out of med school. And before I went to med school, no way could I have imagined this. And and over the years, it's evolved and it's been awesome. So again, my, my, my primary demographic is, is women and I see them the most. I do see men, not as much. And so it's, it's less of what I do, but it is still as important. And, and the reason why I don't see as many men is not from advertising, marketing or anything weird like that. It's just that men, we're, we're not, we're slow adapters when it comes to healthcare. You know what I mean? Remember when the internet came out and men were getting computers? We were all over it when it first came out. Blackberries and all that stuff. We were like early adapters to digital stuff. Everyone, every guy had to get like the best computer with the most RAM and all that stuff. Remember? This is like, we're talking like in the late 90s, you know, early 2000s. And and it was a big thing. And then when the internet transitioned more to a tool for communication, women started getting more active than ever before. And cause there was cross communication and that's one of the areas where women are early adapters to. So, so men were, we're great early adapters to technology and we are early adapters to a bunch of stuff like that. Women, women early adapters to communication and early adapters to healthcare. Women are really good at really taking better care of their health than men are. So that's, I think why I have more women in practice and women are more aware of these things and, and women do lead the way. They set the trend, I believe in healthcare right now, I strongly believe that. And there's more women going to medical school, which I think is the best. I mean, I, even in my day, you know, 20 plus years ago, 20. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, a long time ago, uh, there was, there was, uh, in my class, there were 10 men and 60 women in my medical graduating class. So, you know, it is changing. It is changing. Um, but still with men, we don't have the same depth of patient experience as we do with women to create as much of a nuanced picture with men as we do with women. We're trying to, and you'll see more and more books are being written, more articles being written about what it's like for men and what men are going through about how we're transitioning from one type of man to a different type of man. And that has to do with the fact that they, they feel like there's a lost generation for us. You know, men are our past our past value is really rooted in how much money we can make to support a family and defend the family, put the roof over the head. Uh, excuse me, put a <laughs> roof over the head. That's a good way of wording it. Yeah, that's not a blooper. That's good enough. But it, it was it was men were valued more based upon the who is the strong enough strong enough to support his family and feed his family. Who is the most leader, most masculine, most most guided chief? And that started changing you know, in the past 20, 30 years, more towards men who are more intellectual, um, able to do more, um, you know, sciences and math and that sort of thing. We transition a little bit away from that, but also 
women, you changed a lot. You know, you've been changing since World War II. You know, right around the time of World War II, women started entering in the workforce and there was a huge transition in our society. And more women were working than before. And when World War II ended, the men came home, women stayed at work and men went to work. Women stayed at work, but ultimately ended up being at home and work. So women were working outside the home, but also managing the home. So doing two jobs during that time. And then we just came back and went to work. And that's the statistical truth. And that'll be cited in the description of this video. There's a lot of research on this and, and it's truth. It's not like me trying to pander to you because you're women. And it's not me being a gender trader. That's not what I am. It's just a fact. So, so as women changed and you're able to go out and earn a living and nowadays more and more income and there's women who are outperforming their husbands, you know, income wise, a lot of men are feeling very insecure and unnecessary because women don't need us to supply them with a roof over the head, a roof over their head. And they don't need us to be their primary breadwinner. They, they need more now, you know, and now we're being asked to be more of a partner and, and more of like a present in the relationship. So today's video is going to be about men. And the next video we're going to release right after that is going to be about, um, some of the issues with men and women regarding that. So I hope these things can be helpful with men. You know, again, we're transitioning our lifestyles over from, from this kind of guy who's just works all the time and just throws money at the house. And that should be enough. You know, we're, we're, we, we need to be transitioning more into a, you know, equal participant in the home. Uh, we need to be transitioning over to more of a you know equal communicator in relationships. There's a lot of stuff that we need to evolve in uh, as men. And, and we are, you know, slowly. And I want to tell you the story of a case and it's an amalgam of several cases I've seen with men. And um, I hope this is helpful. So it's just basically, you know, the nature of being man, I wrote this stuff down so I don't forget anything, you know, which is funny. I do that. And I know when I do stream of conscious talking like this, I already bring them all up. So I'm just going to take a peek and maybe I missed anything. You know, the idea is the men, we do have a sense of invulnerability. We're wired weird like that. Um, we tend to project strength regardless of how we feel. You guys know that. You know, the one thing about us that when we're at our best, we provide to others before we provide for ourselves. That is a that is one of the things we are good at. There's an altruism that comes to men, and there's a biology to it as well. Um, great articles uh, regarding that, and I will cite that below, because that's a cool thing to, to look into, how men have that nature of altruism when our neurotransmitters are lit up correctly, where that's our optimal best selves. And, but when we feel weak and fatigued, a lot of times we just push harder. It's just pushed into us as a survival thing. We don't stop. We don't care for ourselves. And that's not a good thing that we have. Often as men, and this may be cultural, uh, maybe biological, I don't know. Maybe it's both, a little both, but it's not good. You know, we tend to restrict emotion. We don't really communicate emotion nearly as well as we should. And that creates a lot of health issues for us. And that's obvious. We tend to ignore problems instead of dealing with them, specifically, you know, health, we do. And we can overfocus on a solution sometimes. We overfixate on something instead of really going after the whole of it. We just fixate on one little thing over here, you know? It's like the guy who was told your cholesterol is going to high, you have a heart attack, and you have all these things, you have to take care of yourself. And they get fixated on this idea that they're going to take this one supplement that's going to fix all of it. And they fixate on it, and they become all this about this one thing. And they do that to the point where they're ignoring all the other advice of the physician, that happens a lot. Now, that's the truth. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that as a man, but also as a woman. You know, 
So this tale of this one case I want to use, you know, uh, is a case I'll, I'll call him Matthew because that's my nickname for guys in general. You know, I have Julie's my nickname for women, just a random woman. So Julie, my nickname for a random guy is Matthew. That's just, I don't know how I picked those names. Anyway, um, Matthew begins, you know, his average kid, just tell us a quick story of him. You know, in junior high school and high school, he participates in school activities. You know, he does some sports. He's active. He has a good social life. You know, his grades are pretty good. He's good. You know, he grows up in a typical American household. Uh, diets could be a little bit high in carbohydrates because he grew up, you know, probably during the time I did when pasta was king. You know, there was so much pasta on the market during the 80s, man. Everyone was eating too much pasta back then. But carbohydrates blew up during the 80s for a number of reasons. But sure, his mom made sure he was eating vegetables and protein. But still, again, if the vegetables and protein would be on a pile of fettuccine, maybe. You know, that's that's how I grew up in the 80s. It was a big thing. His active lifestyle, though, back then prevented him from, uh, you know, gaining weight. And, and so, therefore, he just progressed and was healthy. He turns 18, uh, graduates from high school, and he goes on to college, say. And uh, he moves from home. You know, when you move to college, you don't have the same activity levels. He's not going to be on a school team because the only time you're on a school team is if you're really super athletic, you know. So he's, he's not on a school team. Um, so he's not as nearly as active as he once was without his mom's input on his diet, you know, at least putting some vegetables and some, some protein on top of his fettuccine. He's just now eating like top ramen, which is, you know, I've lived that life and it's just getting a lot of carbs in his diet. And he gains about 15 pounds in his first year of school. And that happens first year away from home when guys have access to eating whatever they want and they're not being physically active like they should. 15 pounds is a reasonable amount of weight you'll see in that case. And, um, it's not good, but it's just reasonable to expect that. So a lot of times when people gain weight that quickly, they notice their pants don't fit. They notice they're gaining weight. And a lot of times guys, women as well, will adopt an exercise regime. They're like, I'm just getting fit, fit again. And so he picks up jogging, which common happens with guys. But most people, when they pick up an exercise activity, they will not change their diet. They'll just think, oh, I'll just exercise. I can eat this. I'll just exercise. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with what I'm eating, which doesn't work. Let me tell you this. Exercise alone will not help you lose weight. I am a three-time Ironman competitor. Three times I've done a full Ironman in my life, okay? And let me tell you something. I can promise you there are plenty of Ironman athletes who were way faster than me, who were 30, 40 pounds overweight, okay? In order for them to be faster than I was, they had to train harder, longer than I did. And I trained a lot. You know, I was training at least four hours a day during like the early stages. And I would go as high as six hours a day towards the end, getting ready. And again, tapered down before, before the race. You know, I was training like a monster. I mean, this is taking a huge part of my life. Those people were training harder than me to be faster than I was. And they were... 30, 40 pounds overweight. That is a classic example of the fact that exercise does not equal weight loss. Your weight loss is in the kitchen every single time. It's just easier for people to say, I'll just do exercise because exercise feels good. It changes our brain chemistry. It changes our mood. We feel good doing exercise. So of course we're going to exercise, you know, that's an easy solution. I feel good doing it. Diet, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And it's a slow solution. You know, it doesn't work right away, you know? And, and then when people, it doesn't work right away, they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. It doesn't work right away, you know? And so they stop doing diet. Come on, admit it. We all know this. It's a fact, right? Going back to 
Matthew, my case, you know, his exercise, not change his diet. Basically the exercise will slow down the weight gain a little bit, but again, you're not really going to lose weight until you change your diet. Um, at the end of his four years at school, he's gained about 25 pounds. And that is a statistical fact for a lot of these kids who go away to college. They leave school 25 pounds heavier and, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in debt. <laughs> you know, if you're in the States, uh, that's what happens. You know, as he graduates and he moves on to his career, he gets an office job. A lot of times guys get into these careers, you know, one of the common careers out there for guys is commission-based work. You know, we do commission-based work a lot. I deal with a lot of, you know, sales reps, you know, for what I do. And you talk to sales reps and I have friends that do sales. You know, I know plenty of people in sales and it's a high stress job because you're only working for commissions. You're only earning what you perform. So let's say that Matthew's a very good salesman, you know, um, has a strong work ethic, work ethic, excuse me. Uh, and he measures his success in life based upon his sales, which is not an unreasonable thing for a guy to do. It's like, I will feel good about myself the more I make. And it's another problem with us as men. We establish our value based upon that sort of thing. Like how much can I make? And, and that's not the best way of valuing yourself as a human being because you just keep pouring yourself into this because I'll make more and more and more because there's always more you can make and, and you pursue that pathway. And let's just say that's the pathway Matthew is on. You know, he gets promoted is what happens in that case. And he works 10 hours a day, which is a common thing with guys. It is not all, but a lot of men do work those 10 hour days in order to build their career up. And, and, you know, breakfast and lunches, they're going to be getting fast food. They're going to get it for convenience. One of those, you know, getting on a snack thing, the vending machines. And that's not unreasonable for a guy in his twenties who's working in that kind of lifestyle to gain more weight. In this case, you know, say in, in our case of, of Matthew, he gains another 15 pounds, you know, and then by 30, he's about 220 pounds. He's fatigued, which he treats with monster energy drink. You know, that's a common thing for guys to do. So he's, you know, fatigued because he's working so much. He's not really taking very care of himself. He's not eating well. He's stressing with his job. He's probably not exercising at this point. And, and you know those guys. They're going to be the ones who are hammering coffee all day or Monster Energy drinks, which are super cool. I'm not knocking the brand Monster. I'm not going to knock energy drinks. I should, but I'm not going to. So just don't think that I'm putting them down specifically. It's the use of them that people have where they're abusing them instead of taking care of themselves. That's the true problem. It isn't the fact that Monster Energy drinks are on the market that is the problem. The problem is the fact that people are not taking care of themselves, so they create within the market a demand for it because of their own lifestyle. That's a fact. You know, at 31, I have uh, uh, Matthew's getting married. You know, he's professionally very successful. He has occasional anxiety, which he leaves by weekends with friends and, and the occasional beer, which is what happens in that age group. He progresses forward with his life at 34. You know, his life insurance gets his cholesterol numbers because that's when you start getting life insurance, right? 34, he gets his life insurance done, and they come back and like, dude, you have high cholesterol. Right. And this is the first time guys like, oh, I should go to a doctor. You know, it's true. This is where oh, you get his first insurance, life insurance policy check or his, or his health insurance policy check. And they're all like, man, you're a higher, higher risk. So you got have high cholesterol. And, you know, in this case, you know, Matthew has elevated cholesterol, triglycerides, VLDL cholesterol is elevated. Uh, LDL is elevated. It also has low HDL cholesterol, you know, and then they also find in, in this case, often high blood pressure. Uh, and blood sugar elevations. And this is all due to diet and lifestyle. All of this, the, the trinity that I just listed, high cholesterol, high sugar, high blood pressure with men, that's what knocks us out of life 
early. This really, really impacts our quality of life and the length of our life, how long we're going to make it. And it all comes back to, in these cases, lifestyle. So Matthew goes into just a standard doctor, and the standard doctor just sees the cholesterol, just sees the blood sugar, and just sees the blood pressure. They don't see Matthew. They don't sit down with Matthew and say, who is this guy? What are you doing with your life? Where is your health? They're not trying to figure him out. What they're going to do with him is write him a statin for the cholesterol, uh, blood sugar medicine, like metformin for his blood sugar, and they're going to write him a hypertensive medication, Sinopril with hydrochlorothiazide maybe. At no point are they saying, hey, what's your diet like? Hey, what's your activity like? So he's put on these medicines. At 36, he begins to experience erectile dysfunction. He has low libido, uh, and that puts a strain on the marriage. That Okay, strain on the marriage. Let's talk about strain on the marriage. Okay, if you're working like that 10-hour days, and you're not taking care of yourself, and you're coming home and having beers, and on the weekends hanging out with your friends having beers, if you don't realize it's straining your marriage with that one, you need to pay attention. There's going to be strain in your marriage already. When you're with your partner, and you're not able to be intimate with them. There's all this charge about that. You know that, right? There's always people talking about sex and erections, and there's so much around that. I know that. I know that. But let me bring up one part here that I think gets forgotten about. When you get married to someone, you're bonded to that person, and it's that intimacy. And you generally, in this culture, have that relationship with just that one person, And your sexuality and your sexual connection is very private and personal between the two of you. You save that for each other, okay? Your partner, when you don't express intimacy towards them or interest towards them, and you are unable to to engage in sexual connection with that person, a lot of times you won't share that part of it. You'll kind of hide that. And you just pretend you're just not interested. That is a common issue in marriages when men start developing erectile dysfunction at the same time, they also develop low libido. So it kind of masks it. Cause they're like, I'm just not interested in sex. But then when they, it comes to performance time, they can't have an erection. And that creates a lot of anxiety, which makes it worse. And they don't want to talk about it. So your wife is going to start feeling like you don't love me. And it, there's something with me she'll feel. And she'll feel that withdrawal. And if there's already strain in the marriage because of the lifestyle thing, that all adds up and it's serious. And a lot of times people ignore that because the thing is like, will that cause a divorce? Not often, but I want you to notice there's a buildup happening here, working too many hours, not taking care of yourself, your body breaking down. Now, no longer are you able to participate in your marriage at that personal connective level, which matters. Okay. That is a very personal, it's a very important part of being married is that intimacy. And intimacy and erectile function, let me just put this part out here too. Libido is not just intercourse. Libido is like, I want to hold your hand and I want to be with you. It's cuddling. It's all the cool stuff that goes into being love. So when you see her and your heart goes a little, you know, huh. And, and I've been married, what, 25 years now. And, and I'll tell you, that doesn't have to go away. It can stay there the whole time. It takes work. And, and a lot of times, yeah, you're wondering, can this make it? And that's true. And we all go through that. And, uh, you know, we all struggle. I've struggled too in our marriages and, and stuff. But it, when the effort, when you put the work in, yeah, 
we go through, we get through those bumps and, and we continue moving together and we work through communication and that's what makes a great marriage and intimacy and that having that your heartbeat go kind of, it's, that doesn't, doesn't disappear in the first year, never to return. It comes back and it just takes work. This is part of the work. So, so let's go back to, I'm, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here. I'm trying to stick to these videos that are like, you know, 18 minutes. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Justin. I'm going to work on that. <laughs> sorry. I just have strong feelings about these things, you know? And, and like, you'll watch my videos. And sometimes I'm like, I'm just going to stick to the script. I get really sticking to it. And I'll notice like, I almost seem like I'm too rigid. And then when I do this, where I'm super relaxed, and I really like doing this. Um, I feel like I ramble too much. So I'm trying to find the sweet spot. This is like, we're like 44 episodes or 45 episodes in now of filming. And I'm still trying to get my groove with you guys. So let's get back to Matthew. So, you know, at 42 years old, Matthew now, his marriage is a severe strain, not emotionally present, not intimate, working too many hours, not home, not helping with the home, which is common for us. And yeah, there's a huge strain in his marriage. And the solution he keeps feeling that goes through our heads is I'll just keep being more of a man and putting more food on the table, more money in the bank account and showing more security and showing how I'm, I'm a man. That'll make her love me, you know? It doesn't work. You know, he approaches his doctor, realizing something's not right, and he, he, he gets his doctor to prescribe him, you know, uh, erectile dysfunction medication, say like Viagra or Cialis, whatever it is, and, and he figures that's going to solve the problem. You know, all too often a man thinks that by fixing the erectile function, that's going to solve the other problems and the intimacy and the relationship and the connection, the bond, all those things. And I want to tell you as a man, that is the, that cannot be further from the truth. I remember when Viagra came out on the market in uh, the 1990s and how many women were like, like, no, <laughs> you remember that? I don't know if I'm the only one who remembers that. Women were like, no. And I didn't understand why. I was like, why? Because the thing is men would have all these years of no connection, no intimacy. And I'll say, you come home like, Hey, it's on. And, and you can't, expect that to happen when there's been a lot of strain in your marriage to all of a sudden pop a erectile dysfunction medication and solve it. It doesn't work that way. But for some reason or another, we think it does. You know, there's a weird thing that we're wired with. I, you know, again, I'm not a gender trader. It sounds like I'm a gender trader in this episode, man. And it sounds like I am pandering to women. I am not, I am speaking the truth. You know, it is, you know, it is. So <laughs> Matthew you know, by about 45 years old, this is when things start breaking down for us. If we don't take care of ourselves, by about 45, you start seeing the wheels coming off. You know, you're like, this is not going to last long. Um, I shouldn't laugh. But if I don't laugh, I'm going to cry because I see these cases coming. And it's heart-wrenching. It really is. So by 45, you know, Matthew, his edge is dulled. He no longer feels the benefit from taking all those energy drinks, drinking all that coffee, whatever the heck he's doing to jack up his nervous system to keep himself running at this high level. Um, he's not performing as well as he used to at work. He, he increases his efforts and works 20% harder to perform at the same levels he did when he was 35. And I hear that from men. It's like, I'm working harder to perform less than I normally do. They're getting diminished returns on this effort. And the reason why you're getting diminished returns is because you're, you're, you're trying to double down on a protocol that doesn't work. You're, pro, you're doubling down on a lifestyle that will fail. It just is. You cannot live that lifestyle. You just can't. Over those 30 years that we discussed, Matthew went from this healthy young kid to this guy 
who's stressed out with hypertension, high cholesterol, high blood sugar, marriage that's really not doing well if there is still a marriage at that point. And that's a classic tale for men. What could have been different with this? How could it have been different? I would say a different way to approach it. I'm going to start with this one saying, you know, in the child of, with Albert, you know, we could have just started by, you know, enforcing a little bit better with meals. We could have reinforced the idea of less refined carbohydrates, less grains in the diet, push more proteins and vegetables in the diet. And when I say proteins, it could be plant-based proteins. I still am not a fan of vegan diets personally. Some of you can do vegan diets well. It takes a lot of work. You know that. If you're a vegan who's healthy, you know that protein choices are critical and it's important to do that. So, so you know, again, I'm not knocking vegan. I'm just saying I'm not advocating for it in this moment. We'll talk more about that kind of diet later in a different episode. The reason why I'm not is because if a guy, if a person doesn't do the protein combinations right, there's going to be a lot of health issues. Okay? So just we'll talk about a minute. So anyway, you don't, that's not me saying from guys, you know, grow up and eating red meat every day. You're not going to eat steak every day, you know? But it's like you eat chicken, you know, those things. But vegetables, you got to push vegetables. You got to push better, not refined grains in the body, you know? And there are ways of doing this, but that would have been a good start. Um, Studies show, and I've seen clinically, children raised with a substandard diet will replicate that diet throughout their lives and only gets worse as they get older. If you start them on a baddish diet, not great, it's just going to get worse. It just doesn't get better. It's very rare that a person later in life will adopt a super healthy lifestyle. It happens, but it's rare. To put higher, you know, to, to put Albert on a high protein, high vegetable diet with limited carbohydrates, you know, as I mentioned, could have prevented a lot of the long term dietary choices he made. If he were raised around that diet, he probably would have stuck to it a little bit better. Studies show that if you introduce children to uh, bitter greens like kale, which I'm not a fan of kale, everyone loves kale. I like Swiss chard. It's not that I don't like bitter. I just don't like kale. I like broccoli rapini. That's delicious. Um, but if you start children off with a good um, variety of, of healthy green vegetables is where they're young, they will adopt it and keep on that throughout their lives. That's true. You know, uh, first year of college is kind of normal, but not ideal for them. Um, kids stop exercising, they gravitate to the easiest diet possible, rich in the foods that they find rewarding. Now that's what we do. Carbs feel good to eat. But if you raise him more on a vegetable based diet with healthy proteins and, and, and good carbohydrates, not refined, but more complex carbohydrates, you'd have a better platform for him when he's in college you know if you taught him as he's growing up and it doesn't be be at home the school system could get better at this stuff i wish they could i wish they would i don't want to touch that though a lot of people have issues around schools and food but still thing is that when the kid goes away from home it's your first trial to see whether how you raised him with while they eat sticks and if it doesn't as the parent it's important to do your best to kind of lean in a little bit and help them Give him guidance. Do your best. That's helpful. When he gets into his career, commission-based sales is the highest stress job there is because there's no guarantees in life. But men like it because it's like a, um, it really establishes the fact that we're a guy. You know, we're, it's a competitive thing. Like we're going out into the, the Mesa hunting. You know what I mean? We're just like live and die by what I can catch out there in the, in the you know, fields, in the plains, um, or in the forests. And, and that's something we're hardwired that way, but it's not the best for us health-wise nowadays. Success in that kind of lifestyle, in a high-stress lifestyle, requires a lot of life balance, work-life balance. And if you think of your body like a race car, 
you really need to take very good care of it in order to get around the track as many times as you can in the healthiest way possible. And so if you're pouring garbage fuel down the fuel tank and you're running the engine too hard and you're trying to stimulate it with nitric oxide and you're trying to chip it, you know, with, with another chip in there to, to change the way the engine runs, you're just going to break your engine down and you're going to cause a lot of problems. And you know that you would never treat a race car like that, but we're treating our bodies like that. So again, working on diet, lifestyle, all these things, work-life balance is critical at this time during his 20s and 30s. If, if Albert had a good platform of diet and self-care throughout his earlier part of his life into his 20s, it would have been easier for him to bounce back from the stress of work like that. It would have been easier for him to bounce back and to correct a cholesterol issue and correct a blood sugar issue and a blood pressure issue earlier on because he would have had those earlier dietary things put into him and lifestyle things, exercise things that he picked up in school would have stayed with him as well. So that would have been helpful. So when Albert turned 34 and his, you know, blood cholesterol is elevated, the LDL cholesterol is to be elevated due to chronic stress. The triglycerides and very low density lipoproteins will be elevated due to carbohydrate intake and his un- uncontrolled, you know, blood sugar elevations his prediabetes would be due to, again, the same thing, blood sugar elevations. And hypertension is just due to the combination of them all with a lack of physical activity um, causing that. Instead of treating him with just those statins, the blood sugar medicine, and an antihypertensive, we really should be really trying to get his diet right, his stress right, his life right. That would be the goal of the physician. I do prescribe statin drugs. I do. I do. I sound like I'm... I'm, I'm uh, I'm uh, confessing. This is my confessional. I prescribe statins. Sure. I prescribe antihypertensives. Absolutely. And I prescribe uh, anti-diabetic medication. Yes. You know, I've, I've written, you know, Ozempic and I've written Metformin and I've written different medications for this. Brendan, why? Why would you do this? Is that good medicine? Listen, if the patient presents to clinic and their blood pressure is elevated, it would be bad medicine for me not to. If the patient presents with very high cholesterol, it'd be absolutely irresponsible for not to. If the patient doesn't choose to take it, that's on the patient, but I will do it. Will I just park them on it? No. I will do that while I work on their lifestyle to make them better not to need the medication. I will work on them with their stress. I'll work on them with their diet. Make sure they get enough fiber. Make sure they're they're changing the lifestyle around. That is a good doctor to make the medication unnecessary. That is good medicine. And that's what he should have gotten at 34 good care. So that would have been better there as well. So, you know, a common side effect of the medications they was put on is erectile dysfunction. <laughs> you know, it just is, you know, beta blockers can do it uh, for blood pressure. Um, we know statin drugs, if you lower the cholesterol enough, you're going to lower the testosterone levels. That's going to cause you erectile dysfunction. And then chronic stress also increases sex hormone binding globulin, which I talk about in previous episodes. Sex hormone binding globulin takes all the testosterone you have and makes it not bioavailable. It renders it inert. So, so that's what led to him having erectile dysfunction and low libido, but also chronic testosterone deficiency in America and around the world is just a big deal. I mean, it's an epidemic uh, around the world and it has a lot to do, as I mentioned in previous episodes, it is really is due to microplastics in our, in our food chain. So, so here he is in you know, the medications he's taking are not helping him with erectile function. They're keeping him alive, but not helping there. 
again, if the doctor was doing his job and change, helping him change his lifestyle and educating him, he wouldn't need to be on the medication that long and he would not have those side effects. In summation for Matthew, I went over a lot of things in here that I wasn't sure I was going to bring up. And, um, but I did go over the things I wanted to bring up. What could have helped Matthew would be early on better lifestyle, better diet understanding, better, really better programming him the start point. Two, it would have been a better understanding at a youth, at his in his youth, in his 20s, on work-life balance and and how to be healthy and to realize that you need to perform at a higher rate. Let me say this. If you look at what Michael Phelps would eat before when he was training for the Olympics when he was young, when he was just starting out, and you look at a picture of it, it was disgusting. At first you look at it like that looks great if your if your mindset is like that. Garbage, literally. Inflammatory foods. And when you're young you can get away with it a little bit. But as you get older you don't. If you eat poorly as an athlete, you shorten your career as an athlete. It's no different as a professional guy in your job. You can't perform at your highest if you're putting garbage in your tank. It just won't work. It doesn't work that way. You have to see your body as a car, a race car, and treat it like, like it's a high-end performance machine. And so it's an important thing during his 20s to understand work-life balance, taking better care of himself, having correct amount of downtime, having a better diet. And then in his 30s, it would have been better for us to approach him more from a, hey, let's get your lifestyle back to better. Prescribe what we need to as we need to. Manage the side effects as we need to. But really work on that you know, work-life balance and how to be healthy while you're working. And then in his 40s, kind of alluded to this a little bit before, but the most important thing I think is that when you couple with someone, I personally think that's a little bit more important than your career. It just is. And that's just my mindset. And that's also been my my work seeing this. And, and I just know this. I think that's the key to it. That takes a lot of your time and effort deserves to be placed there. And so that relationship bonding, that being present with your partner, that being better with work-life balance, which I'm going to go over a little bit in the next episode, is, is critical to, to long-term your overall health as a guy. I hope this helps. You know, um, please feel free to comment below. I, and I say this now in every episode. Comment below. I do. I mean it. I do. I, we read your comments. They matter to us. Um, if I missed something, put it in there. Let me know. You know, I, I, feedback is great for me. I like it. It helps me. It helps me also, Justin and I read through it and we both, you know, make better decisions on what material to cover based upon your responses to us. I want this to be of service to you. So on that note, uh, please like, share and subscribe and I will see you next time.